place for ideas, a place for feelings, a place for life. Listen closely. New Year's Day, 1963. You turn on the TV, and playing is what looks like a cartoon. You see a robot child with spiky hair, and he's flying through the city with rockets in his feet. His big eyes double as flashlights, and he spends his day fighting aliens and robots and humans in a future technological society. He defeats them using an array of awesome mechanized powers. <gasps> it's true. Cacciatore's going to sell me. Oh no, we can't be that cruel. No, I ran out of food more than two weeks ago. Since then, I haven't been plugged in once. Not once. <laughs> Would feed me, I'd be alright. But it's too late for that now. This is Astro Boy, a beloved cartoon that's been rebooted and retold a handful of times since it first hit airways in the 1960s. And the premise can seem simple enough. It's a children's cartoon featuring a superhero android fighting evil. Even though it started in Japan, this kind of imagery and messaging is so common in the cartoons we have even here in the United States. Today, we have hundreds of animated cartoons for kids and adults to enjoy. We also have hundreds of animes, or Japanese cartoons, which millions of people around the world also enjoy. And that's because anime really is a global phenomenon. While the majority of it is created in Japan, Millions of people, from the US to France to Saudi Arabia, enjoy watching it. So what is it that's made anime so incredibly addictive for viewers across the world? Well, for the answer, we look first to this show, to Astro Boy. It's 1945. Japan has just conceded to the Allied powers in World War II. The worst global catastrophe ever seen just took place. Tens of millions of people have died. The United States dropped two atomic bombs on Japan, erasing entire cities in just minutes. In Japan, the war is all anyone has thought about for the last decade. During World War II, there was a near-complete shutdown of literary production that wasn't propaganda. That's Ada Palmer, an associate professor in history at the University of Chicago and a foremost expert on the history of anime. And for part of Japan's war, which, remember, unlike the U.S.'s war, is twice as long, lasting 10 years, not four or five, uh, there was, uh, for part of it, a ban on, quote, frivolous literature, which means anything that isn't war propaganda— uh, which means you also have a generation of kids who, for 10 years of your childhood development, there's no children's books. There's nothing. There's only war. But even after the war, it's almost taboo to mention the conflict at all. There's this cataclysmic crash, and the culture is turned upside down, and the American occupation begins. And at that point, then, there's also a lot of censorship, both the Japanese government censoring stuff and the U.S. occupation forces censoring stuff. So what are people reading? One of the most popular reading materials at this time is something called manga. 
what we might think of as comic strips or short graphic novels. Often, these panels and longer comic book style stories are put in women's magazines, where mothers and their children can look at goofy characters and laugh at their misadventures. There's no talk of war here. And at this time, a guy named Osamu Tezuka is just a student. He's too young to be a soldier, so he's working in one of the many factories supporting the war effort. But Tezuka didn't support the war at all, and he lets his co-workers know by drawing simple manga panels on toilet paper in the factory restroom. Tezuka's dream was to become a manga artist, and it's during Japan's decade at war that he sees a greater potential for manga to be more than just an insert in a woman's magazine. He's excited to prove that manga can be any genre. And he sits down strategically to sort of checklist, okay, what genres have I not done yet? <laughs> Let's do that. So he does, he starts with lots of boys' adventure manga, but then he does girls' manga, and he does you know, an adaptation of crime and punishment, and he does classic literary manga, and he does serious and darker crime manga, and he's trying to sort of broaden out um, how robust this medium can be, that this medium doesn't have to just be humorous gag strips. Tezuka is frustrated by the fact that nobody is talking about the impact the war has had on the country. At the center of his concern are children. Remember, there weren't any children's books made during the conflict, just propaganda. So do they even understand what just happened? How do parents even begin to tell their children about nationalism or racism or destruction? So Tezuka finds a middle ground, manga that looks like it's for children but also tackles issues from the war. It was some of the very first aimed at kids, kid literature that this whole generation had seen. And it becomes an immediate hit. A whole generation began reading Tezuka, and his colorful characters and vibrant colors become a hallmark of a new manga explosion. You get over and over the same vignette of, you know, I walked miles to the, through the destroyed countryside to the, the bigger village and it had a bookstore and there on the shelf there was this book and it was colorful and had a puppy on the cover and a robot and and it was red and yellow and I bought it with my savings and I brought it home and every kid in my family and our friends read it over and over and over until it fell apart and we had the individual loose pages and then we drew them and copied them and it was this explosion of this is for me. Around this time, animation is starting to make its way around the world in a big way. Walt Disney is churning out hits that show how powerful animated stories can be. And of course, at this time, all the cartoons and films are being hand-drawn, hand-animated. For someone like Tezuka, who's churning out hand-drawn manga already, there was an immediate connection. He wanted to bring that scale of storytelling to not just Japan, but to the world. Walking already. Well, what do you know? Uh, he loves Bambi. He went to see Bambi, I think, 12 times or something in the theater over and over. Good morning, Bambi. Morning, Bambi. Morning, Bambi. Just morning, watching Bambi. it and studying and fascinated by what it can Bambi. do. Morning, Bambi. Morning, Bambi. Good morning, young friends. At this time, Tezuka's hit manga is a series called Astro Boy based around the adventures of a boy robot defeating evil. 
It's selling thousands of copies, and both children and adults are in love with the series. So he pitches the idea of an animated adaptation of the manga to Moe Studios. And the networks are wary. They turn it down. And so Tezuka decides to make his own animation studio, Mushi Studios. And it's at this point that anime begins its journey around the world, as does Tezuka's adamant message of pacifism. And so Astro Boy, which he's most famous for, right, is a, a peace advocate and a civil rights advocate and, you know, battles against a dictator called Hitlini, who is trying to strip robots of their civil rights and have an anti-robot genocidal purge. So what now, my robots? What are you going to do to me? We're not slaves! We refuse to obey you! Robot land belongs to me! We're free! You're my slaves, I tell you! Metaphors are pretty, they're pretty stark. Nuclear <laughs> weapons and how they're bad and how nuclear energy should be used for good. And it addresses all of these silences that kids coming out of the war were facing where grown-ups wouldn't talk about this stuff and wouldn't talk about the role of racism in what had just happened and wouldn't talk about nationalism in that way. And luckily, because Tezuka's manga and anime are dressed in a veneer of childishness, they largely escape censorship. Officials just think it's a kid's show, and that only emboldens Tezuka. As censorship lets up throughout the 20th century, he begins to write in very specific stories, like when Astro Boy stops the U.S. Air Force from bombing a village in Vietnam. The goal here, on Tezuka's part, is to create conversations around the uglier side of the world, not just from adult to adult, but from parents to their children, too, and not just in Astro Boy, but throughout the entirety of his nearly 150,000 pages of manga and decades of animation work. Tezuka's worldview and his view of human psychology is actually very dark. Um, and you, you can very much feel the war and the aftermath of the war in it. But mm. for example, he has dozens of first contact stories. It'll be Earth and developing AI. It'll be Earth and squirrel people from underground. It'll be Earth and bird aliens. It'll be Earth and little cute uh, green people that live in tunnels in Australia. It'll be all different sorts of first contact stories, different kinds of aliens, all sorts of stuff. He has one that doesn't result in genocidal war, right? That's, that's Astro Boy. And in that one, it's by a thread that it doesn't. And the fact that anime is a picture-based form of storytelling is an important part of this. Dr. Palmer uses the example of Barefoot Gen, which is written by Kaiji Nakazawa, one of the many manga writers inspired by Tezuka. Is anybody here? <sighs> so this is the autobiography of Hiroshima Survivor, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, after many repetitively, terrifyingly grim volumes of all of his friends dying of radiation sickness, uh, he was walking through the still not reconstructed city and looked down an alleyway and there was this bright, colorful rainbow. And he hadn't seen anything colorful like that since the bomb. And was just drawn to what are these colors? Because it wasn't in the sky, it was in the street. And he wandered in that direction and eventually got there and it was a billboard. Uh, but that 
image and that glimpse made him feel like pictures are something that can communicate across any kind of void. And that therefore it was the union of words and pictures and the union of narrative and pictures that should be the most effective in reaching globally. He wants this to be the antidote to a uh, lack of understanding. Mm. He wants this to communicate across the language of pictures, lets you communicate very directly. When you're less dependent on text, it means that more of the original narrative does remain without the translator's transformations as prose does. And it, you know, it, it, uh, it, it's filled with hope. Um, the idea of, of this kind of universal communication. Expanding anime to the rest of the world is a key part of Tezuka's strategy. When Astro Boy is debuting, he actually buys out billboards around Japan to advertise the show in English. Remember, the United States is an occupying force in the country. He wants Americans to see Astro Boy and take the show and its messages back home with them, to use his work as a mirror for our own problems. Yeah, when I have friends who have kids who are, you know, six or seven, I'll often give them volumes of Astro Boy and say, look, this is how to have a conversation with your kids about what racism is. And it works. Astro Boy becomes one of the first Japanese animated programs to be dubbed in English and syndicated to the United States and, well, around the world. Meaning, you could say it's one of the first dominoes in our decades-long obsession with anime. And as anime grows in the United States, it continues to be a very unique part of our media consumption. Cartoons here were hardly willing to talk about racism or imperialism or any variety of heavy adult topics, especially in direct ways to kids. But anime is consistently willing to go there for kids, teens, and even adults. And that kind of seriousness is what helps solidify its power in the global animation world. Scores of popular animes today continue that tradition of depicting difficult truths and imparting them to audiences of any age. Without that willingness to take younger viewers seriously, it's hard to imagine anime becoming the multi-billion dollar industry it is today. The success of the medium is really a fulfillment of Tezuka's mission to evangelize on the dangers of war to people around the world. Tezuka's ex expectation and understanding, having observed World War II, is that genocidal hatred is very common and that working hard to overcome those differences and be friends and be connected is not something that's going to happen on its own, that it's something that we have to work really, really hard at. He felt that international collaboration and exchange of art uh, and narratives about a cooperative future were one of the few weapons we have against World War II happening again. And that's it here. Music featured in this episode are the songs Termites, Fireflies, and Last Light by Zylo Zico, original music by me, and musical selections from freemusicarchive.org. If you liked this episode, there's even more to the explosion of anime in the U.S. throughout the back half of the 20th century, and you can read all about it on a blog that I wrote called How Anime Took Off in the United States. Anime is really a unique medium that comes with all sorts of good things and bad things. And anime from Astro Boy to Pokemon to Dragon Ball Z, from Miyazaki to Otomo, have played a really important role in US media for decades. I grew up on anime, and if you did too, you might find the article interesting. 
find it on my blog titled Alec Cowan on Medium, or also find it on my personal website. And thanks for listening. Coming, Astro Boy?